Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark and Rick Morton. All right, welcome again to the Think Orphan podcast. This is Rick Morton along with my co-host, Phil Dark. My friend, how are you today? I'm doing really well. I'm doing really well. Folks around the world, um, you may not know what I'm talking about right now. So if in the next couple minutes you're just feeling totally out of it, just know that it's super exciting here in the United States and you can live vicariously through us. But uh, yesterday, a thing called March Madness started here in the United States and uh, it's about basically NCAA college basketball. So Rick is also a, you know, getting into the madness. It's not football. But uh, it's a close second when it comes to the excitement for Rick. So, you know, Rick, how, how, how are you doing in your pool? Um, man, if it tells you anything, I have completely given up on basketball after one day of the tournament. Okay. Um, pretty much enjoying uh, hanging out with my granddaughter, being grandpappy, watching Snow White, and up to my eyeballs in diapers because, because my bracket's already busted. Okay. So for you folks out there, you know that you won't be seeing Rick on Twitter as much talking about bad refing or things like that, like he normally does. So that's a good thing for all of us, but, uh, you know, we'll still miss it. So, you know, but Rick, you know, from, from me, I hope that your bracket comes back because I will, I will miss those, the commentary coming from you. Oh, shucks, Phil. Man, I'm excited. You actually pay attention to me on Twitter. Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes. You know, I pop on. That's fantastic. Well, you know, during some of those games, it's fun because I just got to know what's going on. If I'm out and about, (laughs) I need to know what's going on in a, you know, football game and it's Alabama or something. I'm just curious. I'll just look and... And I'll see you pop up and, you know, it's usually complaining about some call about something, but you know what? That's good because it's passion. And you know, folks, we need more passion in this world. We need more passion about things. March Madness is a fun time, you know, and, and the reality is a lot of the work that we're doing feels like March Madness a lot of the time, right? Can you, can no you, doubt. Yeah. You know, so, so we, um, hopefully will be as excited about the work that we're doing as we get for these pools and these basketball games. And uh, we can love these kids uh, as so many of us love our basketball and football and soccer and everything else. So hopefully a whole lot more. So with that, folks, we are going to I'm going to tell you one thing before we get to the interview we have today. I've mentioned it a couple times on the show already, but we have the Christian Alliance for Orphans Summit uh, in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, it's at Southeast Christian Church. And it's coming up May 8th through 10th. There's a couple pre-conference intensives that go on the couple days before the event itself. And I hope that uh, if, if this is something that you're passionate about, which I imagine it is because you're listening to this podcast, that'd be a great place for you to go learn more, to be able to, if you're not already plugged in somewhere, to find somewhere that you could really get plugged in to do, you know, use your gifts and talents to love the orphan and the vulnerable. Um, and, uh, if you're not able to make it, you know, there's ways that you can get the information, the content, um, from the conference as well. So again, you can go to CAFO, C-A-F-O dot org backslash summit and get all the information you need for that. So with that folks, today we have an interview with a good friend of mine who's Matt Parker. He's with Kids Alive International. He's executive director for that organization. It's an organization that's doing some really good stuff. They're learning, um, uh, different things. And they're applying a lot of it. And so Matt's going to share a lot of that today in my interview that I was able to do with him a few months ago. So take out your notepad. um, And if you have any comments on this, as always, I hope that you engage the conversation and get back to us at info at thinkorphan.com. Or yeah, info at thinkorphan.com. You can also go to the Facebook page and, and get, leave a comment for us. You know, people are getting in touch with us all these different ways and I'm absolutely loving the conversation. And I hope that you, um, if you have any comments about this or about what Rick and I are talking about afterwards, cause we will have something to say about the interview. Um, definitely get to us in one of the different forms that you can. So with that, we're going to go to the interview I was able to do with Matt Parker. Well, hey, Matt, it's so great to uh, finally get you on the show. Thanks, Phil. It's great to, great to be able to join you. Yeah, so, uh, you know, we've been, we've been trying to do this for a little bit, and, and I'm glad that uh, it's finally happening. Um, 
And, you know, you and I have been able to connect over the last few months and, and get to know each other uh, a little a little bit. But I know that a good chunk of our audience doesn't uh, doesn't know a lot about you or maybe nothing about you. So uh, if you could just share a little bit about who you are and how you got to be where you are today with uh, with Kids Alive. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Phil. Um, well, I work for, for Kids Alive International. In fact, um, uh, I've been with Kids Alive now for, for just over 23 years. Um, started My journey with Kids Alive started back in 1995. And at that point, I was a, uh, a school teacher in England. I had absolutely no plans of going and working on the mission field. Um, but summer of 95, I uh, ended up going to, to Lebanon. Um, to work for a month at the Kids Alive Boys Home there. And that was just an experience that transformed my life. Just being in uh, Lebanon that summer, seeing the need and the squalor. This was just after the uh, Civil War had finished in Lebanon. And just as I saw the needs that were there and the suffering, um, I felt God speaking very clearly to me about returning so ended up going back to Lebanon in the fall of 1996, working with Kids Alive as a short-term missionary, uh, helping with the education program there. Uh, I went for 12 months, uh, at least that's what I thought um, at the time. And uh, at the end of that 12 months, I, I was thinking, well, maybe God is calling me to stay for longer. Uh, and I was actually asked to, to stay on um, continue working in Lebanon, setting up a school uh, for Kids Alive there, working with vulnerable children from the community. And uh, so I, I said to God, if you want me to stay, show me very clearly um, that you'd like me to do so. And uh, I think it was about a week later, I met uh, uh, another British young lady who was um, working in Beirut. And, uh, you know, at that time, I felt <laughs> very clearly that God was calling me to stay. <laughs> um, so my wife Mel and I actually ended up being in London so not what I originally planned at all um, set up Kids Alive School uh, uh, exciting um, served with Kids Alive as country director in Lebanon for se uh, seven years and then we were back in England for five years, still working with Kids Alive. I was overseeing Africa, Middle East programs. Um, and then we moved to the States five years ago. And uh, for the last three years, I've been serving with Kids Alive as uh, president um, here in the States. So, yeah, it's been an incredible journey. Um, and, you know, along the way, I've just been reminded so often that, that God's plans are uh, often very different to the plans that we can make for our lives, but that God's plans are always the best. Yeah, absolutely. And can you, can you just share with us uh, what Kids Alive is doing around the world and, and maybe, you know, kind of how that's changed and transitioned over the years that you've been a part of it? Sure. Yeah. I mean, as, a, as an organization, we believe that children need to live free of hunger abuse and exploitation. We believe that orphans uh, deserve to be able to grow up in a loving home and family. Um, that kids who are living in poverty should have the opportunity for a quality education. But that, that most of all, every child needs to hear the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, have the opportunity to respond to him, um, to serve him in their lives. As an organization, we've been around for a long time, uh, just over a hundred years. We started uh, in 1916 in China, and today we're working in 14 different countries with just over 5,000 children. And for many years as an organization, our focus really was just running children's homes, providing safe places for orphans and vulnerable children to grow up uh, where their full range of needs were met. But we've seen a, a shift in our thinking over the last few years. And in fact, um, today, about 85% of the kids that we work with are in community programs. Mm -hmm. So schools, care centers, other projects where we're still meeting a range of needs, educational health care, nutritious meals, counseling, spiritual teaching, but in environments that give us the opportunity to reach out to these kids' wider families. 
And uh, we've been having over the past two years, really, a um, a conversation as an organization about what the future looks like for us um, as an organization, rethinking our approach to orphan care. In the past, as I said, our, our focus has been very much children's homes. In the future, we see our focus being very much family. Um, absolutely believe that a child's birth family is the best place for them to grow up wherever possible. And so we want to do all that we can as an organization to help keep families together and children being having to, uh, to come out of their birth families and into residential care. So really strengthening children's birth families has become one of our primary objectives with the desire that these families uh, will become self-supporting um, and independent ultimately of, of kids' lives, support and resources. Um, we're also exploring um, how, we, as well as supporting children with their birth families, looking at opportunities for, for foster care and other permanent options for children to grow up in a family setting. In fact, we're in the process of, of setting up our first foster care program in Guatemala, which is just really exciting. Uh, at the same time, we do believe that there is still a place for high quality small group homes mm -hmm. as, a, as a part of the um, response to the urgent needs of orphans and vulnerable kids in many communities where we serve, um, maybe places where it's not possible, just not possible for children to be with their birth families or where foster care is not yet a possibility. Um, so, so yeah, um, Really, a whole range of, of, of interventions um, that we are uh, that we're focused on. Our focus being family, keeping children with their birth families wherever possible, looking at foster care options, but then also um, running high quality uh, children's homes. Yeah, and a lot of organizations aren't working in you know fourteen different uh, countries, right? With different cultures in each of those countries. Within each country, there's different you know communities and cultures that you're that you're working with. And how are you seeing your interventions differ across uh, countries and cultures? You know, when you're talking about family strengthening, um, really, the, even the definition of family differs as you go into different cultures and and communities and as far as, you know, extended families and, and the yeah. importance and all those things. Can you just share a little bit about how, you know, family strengthening made look different and how the family style homes that you're, that you're, uh, you know, working with look different? Yeah. I mean, certainly we work, um, in a variety, as, you know, as I said, 14 different countries, a variety of different environments, uh, the type of children that we work with, um, or the situations that the children come from vary in, uh, in different countries. So for example, in Lebanon, a lot of our focus is working with, uh, Syrian refugees, um, in South Sudan, it's, uh, rescuing children from the streets, Guatemala, the focus is very much um, abused girls. Um, so working with uh, you know a whole range of different situations, um, and yes, there, there's that need to be very sensitive to the local culture, uh, but the concept is, is very much the same. Um, looking at how whether it's in Kenya, whether it's in uh, Dominican Republic, uh, whether it's in Taiwan or um, how can we strengthen families? What does it look like in this particular context? Um, how, does, how can we do that well um, in, this, in, this particular, um, in, in this particular place? So the concept is the same. Uh, some of the way that it looks uh, can be a little different, um, but that, um, that real focus, that, that, context, uh, that uh, concept is very much the same. And how are you uh, strengthening families with with the you know the, the specific that you're doing and that you're working with? What does that look like in practice? You know, we can talk about strengthening families. We can talk yeah. about you know preserving families. But what are some of the things that you're doing to actually make that happen? To actually help these families be stronger in these different uh, these different places? Well, in in Guatemala, for example, um, where we have children that come from situations of horrific abuse. Um, they come into our children's homes 
And our goal is to uh, to work with them to provide the counseling and support that they need for um, for maybe a year, maybe two years, um, and then try and reintegrate them back in with their families. But then, of course, these families are are, are struggling, and they, they, often there, there's just extreme poverty um, or other needs. So having a, a social workers that are working with these families, looking at ways that we can support um, support these families and, and, and help them, um, maybe help them start a business. Um, maybe it's providing educational support, um, uh, helping um, the, the mothers, um, help, helping them, for example, um, manage money um, or, or develop the skills um, that they need. Um, so looking at each individual situation and identifying what is best if we put this child back, reintegrate this child with their family, what does it look like to be able to um, support this family well um, and have a social worker that's assigned to that situation and um, identifying the particular needs of that family. In uh, Kenya, uh, we work with, with quite a number of families um, and a lot of what we do there is um, helping families stay together by um, providing support to help them develop agricultural activities. So um, growing food, um, providing um, goats or cows, chickens, so that they're able to, um, to have food as a family, um, as well as sell um, some of that produce in local markets as well. Um, so looking at, at a, you know, different, different ways that we can support families, help keep them together. Yeah, you know, and that's that's what I talk to people so often is that all these things are interconnected. You know, we talk a lot about that on the show. We talk a lot about that just in different conversations with people as they're asking about, you know, what what do you do? You know, it's really trying to get people to understand that interconnectedness is as much as anything else, right? That mm-hmm. that if we can, you know, help a family get out of poverty, that will be a huge part of strengthening that family, which will be a huge part of keeping the kids in that family, potentially even be able to help other families be able to keep their kids in their families and, yeah. or to be able to adopt other children or to, you know, who need that, you know, or whatever it is, is, is that, you know, they're all so interconnected and then discipleship to understand the importance of the family, right? Yeah. So all of those things I know you guys are doing and you're doing that through care centers and schools and medical clinics and whatever those other things that those families need to stay healthy. Because if, you know, they're not healthy as both the kids and the parents, right? I mean, if the parents are getting sick, they're not able to care for their kids. So all these things are interconnected. And I love that, that you guys have that holistic approach to it. Now with the family style homes, um, that you guys are having those, as you talk about the high quality care, you know, and that, that's obviously a loaded term in a day where anything resembling an orphanage is often criticized very much. Mm. And, you know, what, what do you mean by that when you say high quality homes, what does that look like? Yeah, I think one of the questions we've been asking ourselves, Phil, is, uh, how can we create, um, a, small group homes where there is a, a real sense of family. We recognize that small group homes, children's homes, are not the best option. Um, but for some kids, at this point, there is no other option. So how do we create homes where there is um, as great a sense of family as is, as is possible? And um, one of the things we do in a lot of countries is uh, we will have a, a couple or a family that is actually caring for up to eight children. And uh, we obviously try and limit the, the size of these homes. So, it, you know, it might be a, a, a couple, a, a house, house mother, house father, maybe with their own kids uh, who are caring for, for up to eight kids. And trying to help them operate as much as possible like um, as a family would. So creating that environment. So children are eating together, they're playing together, going to school together under the care of, of those house parents, national house parents who are working with those kids. 
we are, um, as an organization, um, constantly looking at how we can improve the quality of care that we provide. Um, we've been um, developing standards of excellence for our, our small group homes. Um, a couple of the questions we're asking at the moment, um, as we think about um, how we do small group homes are uh, the whole question of gatekeeping and um, uh, how are we ensuring that we are only accepting children into our programs that absolutely need to be there. But then also looking from the very beginning, uh, you know, is there a possibility for us to reunify uh, this child with their family, um, reunite that child with their families? So the whole reunification piece. So those are big areas of discussion for us. Uh, as an organization, you know, we are, um, we're certainly committed to improving the quality of our programs while recognizing that in some places um, that's an area of growth for us. And thinking particularly of our African programs right now um, and helping helping those programs really become more like um, I think one of the encouragements for me, having been involved with Kids Alive for for over 20 years now is seeing some of the kids, quite a number of the kids that have come through our homes and um, just how their lives have, have been transformed um, as a result. Um, a lot of graduated university, a lot of, a lot of successfully leading families of their own, just doing really well. A number have come back and have worked with us, which has been fantastic. Um, I was in South Sudan um, just a, a few weeks ago and um, just a, an incredible experience of um, just in this community where there is a huge need. There's been civil war, um, a lot of conflict and violence and, uh, and famine um, and entering our children's home there. And it was like entering a different world. Um, there was such a sense of God's presence and such a sense of um, togetherness and unity and um, family. Um, among those kids. And so it's trying to create those environments as best we can where children feel um, that they are part of a family. Yeah, you know, and that's something that I've talked with a lot of people about. I mean, both with, you know, through the book In Pursuit of Orphan Excellence as well as La Providencia. You know, I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of people about, you know, something you mentioned earlier that I think is, is misunderstood in a lot of places. And particularly when people are working in different parts of the world where it may not be look the same. But what you said earlier, you know, where it's not possible, um, you know, to you know, reunify. So that could be because of death. It could be because of some other things at this point. Um, or that, you know, also that foster care is not, you know, a, a thing. Adoption is not part of the culture. I mean, what, what have you seen as some of those reasons why, you know, at this point in time, you know, the, the need for the residential care, that's these, these high quality family based homes is necessary for this time. Yeah, I mean, a, a couple of reasons um, that, that I can share. Um, in Guatemala, as I've mentioned, we work with kids who have suffered horrific abuse. Mm -hmm. And um, these kids just desperately um, need specialist support. Um, they need psychologists, they need um, trauma care, they need the counseling. And um, they've been taken out of their, their home environments because they've been abused. Um, some of them are pregnant as a result. So, you know, these kids have, have just suffered horrifically. And um, it would be very difficult to put these kids, these girls, these beautiful girls um, into a, a foster care home immediately. They need the um, that specialist support and care 24-7. Um, for a, a period of time, um, but then once uh, once that healing process has started, we do want to see them either back with their families or in a foster care setting. So for some children, it will be very much um, you know we would hope that 
who've just come into our, our small group homes, our children's homes, on a temporary basis um, as we try and support them or maybe support the family and then enable them to go back and live with their family. Um, and another example, and again, I'll use South Sudan, uh, just having been there very recently, uh, I, I met with... Um, uh, the local, um, the the, uh, the director of the local um, social welfare government, social welfare department. And we talked a little about children's homes and, and foster care. Uh, at the moment, there's nothing. Um, this is a country that is in just a, a desperate state, and uh, so the director and I talked about this this desire that we both have that in the future there is foster care. Uh, available or, or that we are able to to find children's families and reintegrate them but that right now because of the uh the critical nature of the situation there it's just not possible so th there are certainly uh, certainly reasons we believe that um that there is a need there continues to be a need for high quality um children's homes small group homes recognizing that it's not it's not the best option. It's not going right. to be our first choice. Yeah, and that's what I talk to people all the time is you, you can still hold that gold standard and still be seeking and pushing towards that, but knowing that there needs to be something in the in the interim as we're working towards that. Um, otherwise, there will be a lot of kids that don't have anything. And that's, that's, not, that's not saying that we are advocating for this type of care. It's to say right now it's a, it's a necessary reality. Um, Absolutely. And yeah. uh, how can we move forward towards the towards the ideal and mimic yeah. that ideal as much as possible in those interim steps? Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we would uh, we would love to see a day where um, there is there is not a need for children's homes. Right. Um, there is not a need for, for small group homes. We would love to see uh, that become a reality. And um, uh, for us as an organization, we're committed to um, reunifying children, looking at other permanent options for children. Um, but uh, yeah, at the same time, right here and now, uh, there is still a need yeah. um, for, for that kind of intervention. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, most people recognize that and we, we don't want to. Um, we'd rather say, man, it, it, we can we can do this and get every kid into a family tomorrow, but it's just not realistic right now. And, and like you said, there are certain situations where a kid's not ready for a family right now, um, yeah. nor are there enough families in some places. Um, some places have a plethora of families that are waiting. Um, and others have very few. And so it's just really, there's different issues in different places with different laws and different realities. And so that's something that I think that people that like you and I, who have been working in it for a long time, understand that and recognize that. Whereas others who are just coming in might say, you know, why, why don't you just do it? You know, <laughs> why don't you just get it done, you know, and change the laws. It's like, well, it's just not that simple. Right. And so there's, there's some, these are complex issues that are, that are very nuanced and there's so many different different aspects that go towards it. So, um, yeah. so with that, you know, you've been doing this, as you said, 23 years, um, long, long time in different areas, different parts of the world. Um, I just, I know you've learned a ton of lessons, so I just want you to share, I know we don't have time to go into every one of them, but if you can share a couple of the lessons that you've learned, um, in your time working with orphan and vulnerable children that you think would help our audience, as they are seeking to love orphan and vulnerable children well, as some of them may be at the front end of their, they're, they're just starting that. They're just, they're in their personal Lebanon and maybe they'll find their, their spouse as well. Who knows? But even if they don't, what can you teach them at this point um, from the lessons you've learned? I think the first thing is that that pursuit of excellence needs to be at the forefront of our thinking. Um, we need to be pursuing excellence um, consistently um, and constantly. Um, I'm reminded of a, uh, one time when I was in Africa, I think I was in Kenya, and I was meeting with the, uh, the director of um, another ministry, a children's ministry, children's home uh, there in Kenya. And um, I, I could see that the quality of care in this home was, wasn't what it should be. 
And in talking with the director, he said to me, well, at least it's better than where these kids come from. I almost a justification for, for not providing an excellent quality of care to them. And I, I believe we need to push back against that. Um, one of the things that I say frequently to our staff here at Kids Alive is that we must pursue excellence in all that we do. We must pursue excellence because God deserves nothing less. And ultimately, nor do the kids that we work with either. So that pursuit of excellence uh, is it's something that we have to have at the forefront of our thinking. And you know, I want to be transparent. I, you know, as Kids Alive, uh, we're still working at this. Right. Um, there, there are things that, as I travel around the world, and I, I see our ministries, that there are some things that I believe we do with excellence. And there are other areas that we still need to work very, very hard at improving and growing at. But in our ministries, I, I believe we need to be embedding that excellence into the culture, building a culture of excellence um, across our ministries. Yeah. No, that's definitely something you and I are on the same page with. And, that, you know, that's what we we're really trying to help people do through this uh, through this show is to give people examples of what that excellence look like in mm-hmm. different areas. Right. And, you know, and, and uh, obviously we can't get into all the specifics of it in each of these interviews, but hope is we get snippets of it and you can go and look at the different work that, that you do in our kids alive that other people are doing in their ministries and in what they're, you know, what they're, you know, promoting what they're advocating in different blogs and other podcasts and other things that we can point people to. So, you know, is there, is there another, is there another thing you want to, you'd want to share anything else? The second thing I would say is uh, don't try and do it alone. And, um, in many ways, looking back at kids alive over the last few years, we've been, um, a little bit insular, maybe focused on what we're doing and the programs that we are running, but not necessarily on the broader landscape in which we serve. And that's an area that we are intentionally looking to change, looking at um, exploring opportunities for healthy partnerships with other NGOs, with government bodies, local churches, other organizations that add value to the work of caring for orphans and vulnerable children in the communities where we work, but then also even beyond that in other countries and other places. I believe it's really important that as Christian organizations, we're looking constantly looking to what we can learn. Uh, I recognize that um, there are we're working, um, there are other organizations working around us and we can learn from them. Um, Effective partnerships uh, can be a, a powerful tool in adding value uh, and accomplishing common goals on behalf of, of the kids that we serve. And so, yeah, that, that's one thing I, I think we've been um, learning as an organization is that um, we're part of a, a bigger landscape. And um, there are some organizations out there that are doing doing great work and we can learn from them. And at the same time, we can we can maybe contribute uh, positively to what they are doing. Um, I think also just as part of that, just being uh, honest and transparent uh, with one another. And sometimes when when you're meeting with uh, other organizations, it sounds like, it it can sound like, um, you know, I hear all the successes, Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, we should be sharing the struggles and the failures as well as the successes and looking for opportunities to be open handed with one another. Ultimately, we're all on the same team. We want to see children that are um, rescued and restored um, for the glory of God. And so looking intentionally looking for ways that we can collaborate um, and share, learn together. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that you, you said something that reminded me of a, of a talk or sermon I once heard. I think it was Matt Chandler. And he said something to the effect of, you know, it'd be a whole lot better if we just started every group that we're a part of and just say, you know what, I'm a screw up and I know you are too. 
So let's just, you know, accept that. And now we can have honest conversations, you know, and I think that there's something about that to come into these conversations and go, you know what? None of us are perfect. Let's stop Mm -hmm. trying to pretend that we are to the extent we are trying that. And let's just try to move forward and see how we can work together to do this kingdom work. As you said, you know, we're on the same team and that, I mean, I swear it's folks out there, you know, if you think that I planted these answers in, in Matt and said he had to say them because they're so consistent with what we're talking about on the show that did not happen. Um, and, uh, but I think what it goes to is, is the, the truth of, you know, we really need to work together. We really need to pursue excellence. These are things that we need to do these things together. And, you know, and I think they go together in order to pursue excellence. We have to work together, right? We have to have the teamwork because we know we're not going to be great at everything. We can't possibly do everything to, 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 uh, to do everything for what these kids actually need. Um, same way, you know, as a parent, I can't do everything for my child. You know, um, they have so many people in their lives that are going to pour into them if they're going to flourish in their lives. And I think that that is something that we really, really need to focus on, um, as we're working together and as we're moving forward together. And, and I really appreciate that, you know, and there, we talked about the book Rooting for Rivals. Um, in fact, as I was driving to the office for this interview this morning, somebody left a voicemail for, for me and said, hey, you know, this book, or that, that interview you did with, with Peter on Rooting for Rivals and this book is such an important concept. How can we do this more? How can we do this better? That's so critical. And I'm like, amen. And yeah, it is the yeah. challenge we have, right? So, so what, are, what are, you know, I mean, how are you doing that in reality? Like, how are you doing that in practice? Yeah, I mean, I think over over the last few months in particular, we started um, a number of different conversations with other organizations. And um, it, it's just starting out of conversations, you know, how can we, um, how can we help you? How can we um, support you in the work that you're doing? Um, and at the same time, we, we want to learn uh, as an organization from, from what you're doing. And um, your successes and your failures. Um, so, so let's let's talk. So it really starts as a as a dialogue, um, just a conversation, um, just uh, just learning from from one another. Yeah, it's you know it's kind of like a relationship as we've talked about. Yeah, you know, I mean it's you start as you would with any other relationship with. Hey, who are you? Tell me about yourself. And yeah. then as you do that, you see ways that you can actually work together and then you build trust by doing small projects and then you, you know, keeps growing from there. Um, yeah, now, and I, and I've, I know you're doing that. I know we've had conversations. Um, we're hoping to, you know, work together on different things, but, uh, but yeah, you know, I'm, I get excited, um, because, you know, I know it's not just words, um, that you're actually working to do this. So, um, you know, I, we could, we could talk about these things for hours and hours, but, uh, unfortunately today we got to, we got to bring it to a close. Um, so, you know, just the last couple questions we ask all of our guests, uh, the first is what have you read, listened to, or watched recently that has impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children with excellence? Yeah, there are, I mean, there are some great resources out there and uh, certainly as an organization as we have uh, reflected on our approach to to orphan care we've really benefited from um, some of the resources of um, uh, faith to action initiative um, christian alliance for orphans Um, one book that's i I think for us as an organization during the past year has been significant and uh you were just mentioning uh rooting for rivals which is a fantastic uh, book i've just finished reading that myself uh but we've been as an organization reading mission drift by um Mm -hmm. by by peter greer and uh chris horst and um you know through the years in lebanon uh, uk and US, I've seen so many Christian organizations that for a variety of reasons have just drifted from their original purpose. They've lost their cutting edge. And uh, we've really appreciated as an organization, our our board, our leadership, our staff, um, just that reminder that uh, um, as a 
mission true organization, we need to know why we exist to protect that core, um, to be faithful to what God has entrusted us to do, to recognize that the, the gospel is our most precious asset as an organization, and that as we follow um, the, 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 the gospel, the gospel calls um, us to that excellence, that demands that excellence in our work. So it's been a, a really helpful uh, resource for us uh, as we as an organization have reaffirmed our commitment to keep Christ at the heart of everything we do as an organization, every children's home, every school, every care center, every community program, every decision that we take, and then that commitment to pursue excellence in the way that we care for orphans and vulnerable kids. Yeah, that's uh, fantastic. I mean, pretty much anything Peter's written, you can you can uh, be be confident that it's going to be great. Um, yeah. and I, and I think part of it is he, you know, as he's talked about on this show, it, you know, he does it all in collaboration. He has never written a book by himself and he said he won't. And I agree with that. He, like I haven't either. I've only written one. He's written a bunch. So, you know, I'm going to, but I had a lot more authors on mine, I guess. So maybe we've had the same amount of authors. He's just had way more books, been more prolific. So he yeah. wins. But, uh, <laughs> but that's just the point is we're not in competition. That was obviously a joke. Sometimes humor does not travel well on the airwaves. So that was a joke for the record. Um, but, uh, but yeah, Peter's a great friend and I appreciate him so much. That book is fantastic as all of them are. So, you can't go wrong um, by, by, by checking out anything Peter's written and that one in particular. So the last, uh, last question, what person has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children with excellence? <laughs> wow, that, that, that's a hard one. Of course it um, is. Of course yeah. it is. We got to end with a nice hard one because you've only had 23 years of people into actually more than that. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, you're, you're a little bit older than 23, but you don't necessarily look it, but, uh, you know, you definitely are. So, but, uh, yeah, what, you know, I know that it could be one representative person or a couple people or a group, whatever, but, um, we know there's other people. So people out there, if he yeah. doesn't say you, you know that you're probably in the mix. Yeah. You know, through the years I've worked with, um, I've been influenced by just many great leaders, pioneers, practitioners all around the world that have inspired me. Um, but, one person that's really inspired me is uh, somebody who has has never been, will probably never be in the public eye or, or the spotlight. And that's one of our, our national staff in Lebanon, uh, uh, Fadi Hori. And he's worked with Kids Alive, it must be nearly 30 years now. Um, he gave up, a, in the early 1990s, he gave up a, a well-paid job as a chef in a restaurant to pour his life into caring for orphans, vulnerable kids. And uh, as I've worked with Fatty through the years, I've been so encouraged just on countless occasions to see the love, uh, the compassion that he has for these children, uh, for his commitment to share Christ with them. And incredibly moving to see these kids, a lot of whom have never had uh, a stable, loving father figure in their lives, just to see how they respond to him. Um, and even after they've maybe grown up and left our program, how they come back and visit him and they just want to share what's happening in their lives and, and just acknowledge the significant impact that he has had in shaping who they are. And, and that's just a, just a reminder to me of the critical role that caring, compassionate nationals, staff and volunteers all around the world have in caring for the children in their own countries and cultures. And just the privilege that it is to come alongside them and um, support them in that work. Yeah, you know that, that there's so many people in our lives, and it's so always so encouraged me to hear encouraging to me to hear these different people that have impacted all these folks who've been on the show, and that this is no exception. So, thank you, Matt, for your time. Thank you for all that you're doing. Thank you for how much of uh, encouragement you are to me, and I know so many others. So, uh, yeah, I hope I hope that you 
do continue to do this and you do continue pursuing excellence and uh you know you definitely have me on your team thanks Phil. it's a pleasure thanks thanks so much for this opportunity thank you for all you do well thanks again matt for sharing all that you've been learning over the years um and uh just really it excites me to hear what kids live is doing um, and that what Kids Alive, how Kids Alive has been changing and really seeking excellence over the years as you're applying what you're learning to what you're doing. And you know, you know, Rick, it's something too that I think, you know, we forgot to mention at the beginning of the show that this is the last episode of this season. And, you know, I thought what better way before we take a little break, but to have, you know, a guest that has a British accent. Because as we've <laughs> talked about on the show, you know, by just simply by having a British accent, you are smarter by a lot, you know? And so, you know, I've actually been contemplating getting, you know, voice lessons to get an accent for a British accent because it can not only help me in this work and get more speaking engagements potentially, but also in the soccer coaching that I do, I will have credibility just shoot up. (laughs) So anyway, what are your thoughts on that before we get to the interview? Well, you know, man, it, obviously it's great to listen to Matt and uh, in his he does have um, a velvety kind of mm-hmm. voice and, and and the British accent. But, you know, but he also had some things of substance to say to us today. And I, I, I really appreciated his vulnerability and just talking about the the progression that they've moved through at Kids Alive, um, you know, really kind of moving from a focus on group homes and, and something that's more institutional Um toward, uh, you know, toward family-based care. I think it also was, um, you know, as we've talked about here on, on the show before, as you and I've talked about a lot privately, um, the, the fact is that, that he also was balanced in saying that, um, th- that, that is, that's not an immediate shift. And, you know, that, that they have, they really had to work through, um, over the years moving toward that model. And, and frankly, they're, you know, they're still not completely there themselves. And so it was, it was refreshing to hear that he's working that out in the context of community. He's looking at, you know, best practices from other people. And, uh, but yet, um, you know, they're still growing as an organization and growing as a ministry. Um, so that was really great to hear. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, it's, it's so hard, you know, when you're doing something and you've been doing it for a long time to come in and learn something and then realize, you know what, that may, that may actually be a better way to do something for these kids or for whatever, you know, and to have the humility to have the, um, but also beyond humility, it also is a, a realism, you know, to be able to say this is better and then to have that vision to say, and we can make changes. Right. Because it's even when sometimes, you know, it's better, it's just so hard and there's so much sunk cost in the way you already do it, that it's really hard to start making shifts and changes. And there's that in between time that you talked about, but there's also in in that in between time, it's often more expensive because you're doing it effectively two ways during that time. And that's really hard for organizations. That's really hard for donors to understand. And so those are things that I've, I've just been really encouraged by it. And it is very slow. It's not something like you said. You can't just come in and say, okay, we now know how to do it. Let's do it. Right? Because you have lives in the balance. You have people that are doing things a certain way. You have structures that either need to be built or need to be modified. You have, I mean, there's so many moving parts that go into it that... I just, you know, I always get encouraged when I hear of an organization that's been doing it for a very long time to come in and realize, okay, here might be a, might be a better way that we can do this. And then to actually give it a shot, um, knowing how hard that is as an organizational leader myself. So, yeah, I think, you know, Phil, he, uh, you know, even as, as he was talking about the fact that, you know, of the changes that they've made and the way that they've grown it, you know, it just occurs to me, I think all of us that are that are out there doing ministry, um, you know, a lot of times we feel like we're trying to build the plane and fly it all at the same time anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and it's, it's really hard to stop and retool, um, when, you know, when fundamentally, you know, many times you feel like you're, you're just really scrapping to keep your head above water. And, uh, and so I think, you know, he, he provides for us a great example, um, you know, in that, I think the other, you know, the other thing for me that was that was really helpful. Uh, he said a lot that was really helpful, but another thing that really stuck out to me um, in in the interview was um, 
you know, him going back and talking, you know, about, um, you know, about how he'd been influenced by Peter Greer and, Mm -hmm. and the, you know, just the idea of, uh, of mission drift, um, and, and the observation that he made across, um, experience with ministry, ministries in the UK, ministries in Lebanon, ministries in the U S about how many of us fall prey, um, to, you know, to mission drift, mission creep, you know, sometimes we call it, um, and I think you know something we we a lifeline that we continue to to wrestle with ourselves is is realizing that that is that is both in functionally the things that we do in ministry. Um, the other thing is is like that that creep away from, um, frankly, away from the gospel, away from the reason we do this, um, you know, in Jesus' name and what that means. And and I think um, you know sometimes being in a space where we're working with governments and other folks that are that have um, that have agendas that are very similar to ours but they're not the same they have missions that are that are not completely unaligned with ours but not the same that um, that it, it, it can be easy to you know just over time lose that essence um, and be something that kind of only becomes you know Christian it becomes it's Christian in name only right. Um and, and so for me, that was a great reminder, not only about the functional things that we do, but also those, you know, those kind of philosophical, theological reasons for why we do what we do. And, and, that, and that part of being mission focused is always, you know, just kind of going back to square one and, and, and really filtering those things we do in ministry through that. So it was, it was, good, to, it was good to be reminded of that by him. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and that's something I actually was just talking to somebody, I think yesterday or the day before about, but talking about if we can create, and it's, you know, why I'm working on this global training collective that we're, we're talking about, you know, that if we can bring people together to do work around the world, to make training and coaching and consulting more accessible in all these ways, we will, that will make us able to stay in our lane so much easier. If we can stay in our sweet spot, in our lane, what we're doing, we will be able to do it longer. We'll be able to do it better. And I say longer because we won't burn out. When you do things that aren't in your sweet spot, it drains you more than things you're doing that are your, what you're, you're just super passionate and skilled in, right? If you're doing something that you're constantly having to go to the well of, I really don't really know what I'm doing here, but I'm, I'm just kind of faking it till I make it, which is what we often do and usually do when we're outside of our mission in, in life, mission as an organization, individual missions as well. Because sometimes we forget, oh, well, we're in an organization, so therefore we must be doing the mission because we're staying on mission. So we're doing our personal mission, too, because we're part of the organization. That's not necessarily true, right? You can be in an organization doing something that you love and passionate for that organization, but you personally are doing something that's completely out of your sweet spot. Same thing for organizations. Some, so often organizations try to do too much. And when they try to do too much, they're often stretching themselves to a point they shouldn't be stretching themselves. And that's, it goes to what Matt also talked about where they kept trying to do that and realized we can't and we need other people and we need other organizations and we need to work together or else we're never going to be able to do that. Because I think collaboration and mission drift or lack of collaboration and mission drift go hand in hand. And I think staying mission focused and collaboration are, are like, you know, right there together. And so, you know, and I, yeah, absolutely love that he was able to talk about both of those, you know, and I mean, Peter, as you guys folks out there, if you listen to the show at all, you know that I'm a, a big fan of Peter, both because, you know, I've read his stuff, but also because I know him as a, a person, as a human being, and as a leader. And, and uh, you know, he lives it out and he's a great uh, role model for anyone out there looking on how to lead. So, when he writes a book like Mission Drift, like uh, Rooting for Rivals, like you know several of the other books, Forty Forty Vision, and The Poor Will Be Glad, and in these other, I think that was that was what it was called, right? I don't I don't remember exactly the name of the first one, um, but those are things that are, you know, things we need to continually be remembering. Is if how can we do the best work we can possibly do? And part of that is giving everything we have for the kingdom, but it's also how can we figure out what we can do best, what we can do better than anyone else. And, you know, as close to that as possible, continue doing that over, you know, as much as possible. And obviously we're going to have to do things that we don't love 
in in the context of our job. Obviously, we're going to have to go beyond what our sweet spot and lane is. But the more we can stay there, I think the better our work will be for ourselves, the better, you know, for our human, you know, self-care and also for the kingdom and for all the work that we're doing. So what do you think about that? Yeah, man, I, I, you know, I think that, uh, you know, we are, um, we are not able to do this alone. And I think that's really, you know, that's a manifestation of God's grace in the middle of the task that he's given us to do. Mm-hmm. That uh, that that we have to we have to rely on each other. We have to collaborate well. Um, we if we become an island to ourselves, um, we you know we will we will not do well personally, and we will not do well corporately. Um, and and so you know, thanks be to God that we um, that that we are in the midst of a challenge. That uh, that that really causes us to have to you know bond together and band together well, um, and and the you know and and the fact is that when we when we stop and take an objective look, we also realize that that is you know that is much to our um, you know that's much for our own good, um, and 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 the way that the Lord intends for us to live, um, you know anyway. Um, it's how we're, it's how we're created. It's how we're wired. Um, and so I, uh, I'm thankful continually for the guests that we're able to have on this, uh, on this podcast and the way that we're able to, to engage with a community of people that believe that as well. Um, many of whom are friends and, and, you know, dear partners and co-laborers mm-hmm. in, uh, you know, in this task, meeting some other folks along the way as well and finding out how to, you know, how to rub shoulders and, and how to get better. And so, um, you know, was, uh, was incredibly challenged by that, even in this interview today. Um, but obviously we believe in that as a, you know, as a principle. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, th- this is, I think a good, w- good time to segue into Dr. Rick and Phil recommend. And I think that your recommendation today, Rick is, is, Right, you know, part and parcel with what we're talking about here. It's dovetailing perfectly. I don't know if part and parcel was the right thing, but that's okay because sometimes I make mistakes in the, what I say, but it's dovetails very well with the interview, I believe. And uh, so what, what do you got for us? Yeah, well, you know, Phil, we recently have had had just had an opportunity with uh, with some of our team at Lifeline to to rub shoulders with uh, Scott Holtz and the folks at LifeShape over as part of the the Windshape Foundation, and and was just reminded of a book that I read a number of years ago, but just gave it a fresh reading, um, The Secret by Ken Blanchard and Mark Miller. It's kind of one of the one of the core books that uh, that the folks at Chick Fil A and the folks at, at Windshape use uh, in leadership, and and you know just really the idea, the secret being um, you know servant leadership, you know being the idea that that servant leaders, um, people who who humble themselves and ser- serve others well, um, you know that those those make. Um, you know, kind of the best leaders. And so they talk in terms of even they even use a, you know, an, an acrostic for serve just to kind of remember, you know, what are our primary tasks in leadership? See the future. Um, you know, like where where are we going? Leaders, leaders keep their eyes up and uh, and, and see where we're going, engage and develop others. And so, you know, this this idea that that our primary goal in leadership is not to not to bring claim to ourselves, it's not to bring focus upon ourselves, but it's to, you know, it's it's to pour into others to, you know, to extend the the you know, the, the, the mission to, to reinvent, uh, continuously. And so this idea that we're, we're never in a, in a place where we've arrived and, uh, you know, and, and just dovetails beautifully with some of the things we talk about a lot here, you know, value both results and relationship. And so the idea that we, we want to get things done, we want to see things accomplished, but we, but we want to, we want to see people grow and we want to see depth of relationship and then, you know, embody the values and, and really, you know, particularly, just thinking about what we do in, uh, you know, in orphan care from, you know, from a, from a Christian perspective that, you know, that part of, of what we're continually doing is, uh, is, is that we have ministries that not only have values, but ultimately we personally, um, you know, need to live and and walk out those values and, and be the men and women that Christ has, has called us to be, um, 
you know, they, they talk about and, and, you know, use that iceberg metaphor, you know, that, that what's really important um, and those things that are, that are really significant for us in our leadership and ultimately in our ministry are those things that are below the waterline, those things that are unseen, um, you know, but are, but are incredibly solid. And so I, I just commend that book to, to folks. If you haven't read it, um, it's kind of one of those books, books that I continue to go back to year after year as well. And would, would just say, if, if those are not concepts that you've thought about um, in a world where we're really challenged not to be servant leaders, but where we're challenged to be, you know, authoritarian leaders. And, and just remember what Jesus said, you know, that we um, that, that he's given he's given a different way of leadership that we're not to lord over, um, you know, like the rulers of the Gentiles. And, you know, he talks about, you know, this idea of a top down leadership model. Um, that's not the leadership model of the kingdom. And so go grab The Secret by Ken Blanchard and Mark Miller, and it, it'll, be a, it'll be a great reminder or a great new read for you um, to think a little bit about servant leadership. Well, thank you, Rick, for that great recommendation. I, folks, I just couldn't uh, agree with Rick more on that because I was able to read that book a few years ago, and it is absolutely fantastic. And so I just strongly recommend you go pick up that book and you read it uh, and engage with it as much as you possibly can. And I do probe and pray, as I always do, that you take all that you've been learning, all that you learned today uh, through this interview, as you listen to it, and hopefully all that you're going to learn through The Secret and other books that we were able to uh, reference in this, in this podcast, and you use it all to help you understand how you can love orphan and vulnerable children better and better each and every day. Thanks a lot. Have a great week. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.